Well, we're talking about what kind of people we want to be in a society in order to be salt and light to the world. The premise of this part of, um, of our studies in the fall is that um, uh, it is one of my convictions that the course that our society is on right now, uh, at, I'm talking about at large, the popular society, is not sustainable. It will eventually collapse under its own weight because it must. It has the seeds of its own death in it. So it is essential in this day that there be an alternative, that there be another social order so that the world can see that order and can come to it. However popular it is, they can come to it when they are ready. So this morning, I want to speak on the subject of integrity. But let me say it a little differently. I want to talk about your reputation. Your reputation is one of the most powerful things about you. Think about this. It will determine how far you go in life, how much you enjoy it, and what people will say about you when that life is over. All of it will follow your reputation. Reputation will help you get a loan when the banks are not sure. It will help you get a promotion when your employer thinks you're on the bubble. When your professor is not sure of the grade you deserve, your reputation will have something to do with it. Now, you don't like that. It's true. <laughs> Somewhere I've read that people in their 20s and 30s today, about 70 to 80% of them will not have that first interview because of something they did years ago. That's reputation. Reputation will determine whether you get the interview at all. And if it's a good reputation, then you'll get offered a job that wasn't even posted. If it's a bad reputation, they'll find some other reason to not hire you. If it's good, people will elect you. They will give you second chances. If it's bad, you may as well not even run. Reputation is a powerful force. They used to say, your resume will give you your first job, but every job after that will come from your reputation. And here's what's different about it than it was a few years ago. Today, with modern technology, we are able to gather more and more information about every one of us, and we can store it forever. So what is done in our teens can be shown on video when we're in our 50s. And not only that, but the most recent technology now allows people to take data that's been gathered about us and to analyze it and actually predict how you and I will act in a situation just from the information that they have. And what that means is authenticity today 
is a big, big deal. And if you can fake that, you got it made. But you can't. You can't. So the Bible calls us to be people of integrity. Not for somebody else's sake, but for our sake. This is a cheating culture. A cheating culture, says David Callahan, exists when people in that culture feel that if I don't cheat, I will not get ahead. (laughs) So when we file resumes, we go into it knowing that the rest of the resumes are going to be well, shall we say, slightly exaggerated. And so we are therefore tempted to exaggerate our own or we have no chance of competing. Taxpayers will cheat the IRS because we learned a few years ago the IRS cheats taxpayers. Athletes will cheat the officials because 91% of them, according to the New York Daily News, believe that referees, in fact, deliberately affect the outcome of the game. And so you go into it knowing that it might not be completely legit, but it's just really evening the score. It's a cheating culture. When Rutgers University did their research on students, 4,500 of them, a little bit more, they found out that 75% of them admitted to cheating in some way in the last year, but the shocking number was that 50% of them said it was all right. One of the students uh, said, it works like this. The better grade you get, the better grad school you get into, and the better grad school you get into, the better you do in life. In the real world, she says, that's how it works. Uh, what, What is shocking is not that the person cheats, but that they truly believe that cheating is the only way to survive. It's no longer acceptable, but virtually expect. So Jesus comes talking one day and he says, blessed are the pure in heart. When something is pure in the Bible, it is unpolluted. There's nothing else in it. No sediment, there's no shaft, nothing. It's 100% what you think it is. And in the Bible, when something is pure, it's undivided. It's not split between this thing or that thing or three or four other things. Now keep that in mind. When something is pure in the Bible, it is unpolluted. There's nothing else in it and it's undivided. It is into nothing else. And when the Bible talks about the heart being pure, it's speaking about really the solar plexus of your character. It's not simply the thing that beats, and it's not simply your emotions. We talk about loving with all of our heart as if that were purely an emotional thing, but not to the ancients. When they talked about the heart loving, they talked about the will, the intellect, the emotion, the passion, the longevity, everything was stored in the heart. Your memories, your conscience, your value system, what you truly believed in and what you would die for was stored in the heart. So your bias and your prejudice and the way that you see things to the ancients did not proceed from your mind and surely not from your past. 
It proceeded from your heart. And so before you got into something, the way that your heart was postured determined how you would feel about it. So now you know the power when Jesus says, blessed is the person whose default is pure, is single-minded, is unpolluted and undivided. Jesus said it's out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts and immoral thoughts and greed and anger and lust and envy. These things, he said, they come from within. And they go out and they pollute a person. It is not, he said, what a person does on the outside. It is the condition of a person's heart, whatever he is doing on the outside. Proverbs says, guard the heart because out of it are the issues of life. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Whatever he projects himself to be, whatever the image, whatever his status on Facebook, <laughs> it's the posture of his heart that defines the person. So I've translated that beatitude, blessed are the simple. Because simple just means single-minded. The ancients used to wear robes, as you know, and they would sometimes, when they wanted to hide something, they would fold the robe over twice and take the thing that they were trying to hide and slide it in the second fold. So when someone came at you with two folds, you always wondered what was in that other fold. To be simple to the ancients was to be one-folded. It was to come at someone without an agenda, without anything hidden, pure, single, undivided. Happy are you if your whole life is this way. You will be happy if you not only obey the rules, but you love it when you do. If you obey the rules and you don't love it, you will hate your life. You'll get job promotions because people are watching your behavior and performance, but the tension between what you have to be on the outside and what you really want to do on the inside will just chafe at you over time. But happy is the person whose life is full of integrity, integras. It is integrated. What is on the inside and what is on the outside are integrated. They're the same. When you cut them, you can see them through and through and they bleed naturally what they really are. They're authentic. Not because they must be, because they are genuinely inside what you think they are outside. Happy is that person. Now, the language of integrity is a promise. When somebody makes a promise, 
They're out there. Now you can see over time how much integrity they have. And so uh, not wanting to be out there, not wanting to commit ourselves to one thing when a couple months from now something else may come along and it could be a little better makes us not really want to dive into anything, does it? Makes us just kind of want to stay on the outside and put our toe in the water, but not fully commit. Because the moment you commit, you're on the hook. Somebody after the first service said, Steve, you got to see this song by Demi Lovato. Trust me, I don't listen to Demi Lovato. I won't get this. I, have you heard promise me no promises? Uh-huh. This is not going to sound like Demi Lovato. But I want you to hear the words. I just want to dive in the water with you, baby. We can't see the bottom. It's so easy to fall for each other. I'm just hoping we catch one another. <laughs> oh, Nana, just be careful, Nana. Love ain't simple, Nana. Promise me no promises. Oh, Nana, just be careful, Nana. Love ain't simple, na-na. I think I get it. Promise me no promises. Baby, I think about you and I feel it deep in my heart. Maybe we just ain't meant to be something, but maybe we are. Ooh. <laughs> so just be careful. Love ain't simple. Promise me no promises. Love ain't simple. Promise me no That's what I'm talking about right there. You see what I mean? You don't commit to anything, man. You just play with it for a little while. And when the situation changes or maybe it gets hard or some other option comes up, well, then you just decide, well, it's not quite what it used to be. Move on as if this were a sign of authenticity. Listen to me, church. That may be what you feel deep in your bones, but you cannot build a society on that. If you enter into relationships like that, you are part of the problem. You are not part of the solution. If you want to see reality to this, Show me the same relationship five years later when there's kids involved. And serial relationships. Because someone can't commit. And when we do commit, we overcommit. So that we don't really protect the things we're committed to. We commit to everybody because we can't say no as easily as we say yes. And so we don't really 
cut something off or gouge something out because it's starting to compete with the thing that we're committed to. That's why you cut off. It's why you gouge out because you made a commitment to someone. And there are other things that are competing against it. And so, says Jesus, you do radical things in order to protect the thing that you've committed yourself to. Only when we make promises and protect promises can we keep promises to the very end. Only then are we people of integrity. It's quiet in here. There must be game in the area. Can I give you another narrative? Can I tell you who you are? Because you won't hear it from Demi. In the Bible, uh, we learn that we are people of a covenant. Let me say that in slow motion. We are people to whom God has made promises. As I was reading the three illustrations that Jesus gave, one of a man trapped in his own thoughts, the other of a person in a relationship they want out of, and the third of a person in court or in the marketplace trying to ratchet up the verity of his words, the idea of a covenant kept coming to my mind. Those Old Testament people that study covenants uh, make a habit sometimes out of comparing the covenants that God made with his people to other covenants between suzerain or vassals, kings, back in those days. But what intrigued me this week, church, was not the similarities, but the differences between the covenants that God makes with his people and all other promises back in that day. Here's a short list. For starters, when God makes a promise, he does it with his own initiative. He never waits for someone to make a promise to him. He always just jumps in and starts making promises that seem to the other person rash. Let me say that a little bit differently. One of the unique things about your God, Christian, is that when he appears for the first time on the stage of history, he does not speak of responsibilities that people have to him. He starts making promises to us. Think about that. The more powerful you are, the fewer things you promise because more people want some of you. And you have so much power that you could change the life of everyone. You're afraid of being taken advantage of. And so as your power increases over life, you tend to step back from promises. You don't tend to make more. But what you have in God is he comes all on his own free will and he starts making promises to people that aren't even looking for promises. And the reason that he does it is because... He's expressing himself 
God is showing us his nature and his will and the kind of person that he is by making promises. He makes them for what is in him, not for what is in us. They are anchored in his being. It's why in Genesis 15, when he says to Moses and he walks, or Abraham, when he walks through the pieces, he says, I swear by my own name. It's not because there was no other name to swear by, though that's also true. It's because his promises are anchored in the being of God himself, such that if these promises don't come true, he ceases to exist. As God. Second, every time he makes a promise with somebody, the relationship changes. What the ancients called fictive kinship, that is, someone who is not family is taken into the family and treated like family, that changes when God makes a promise. This is the shocking thing about his promises. He reaches out to people who have no part of him and he obliges himself to them. And when he does, they become part of the covenant. They're now kin. What this means is that God, when he makes promises, never just obligates himself to the terms. He obliges himself to the person. The covenant of God is never so much about his commitment to do what he said. It is about his commitment to take care of the person to whom he said it. That person is like blood to him because of the promise. Which leads to the third thing. Every time he makes a promise and he brings us into that family of his, it gives us a tremendous feeling of love and trust and security and there is freedom because you don't have to worry about being rejected. You're never playing for your grade with God. He's already loved you and he's already taken you in and so you're free to try stuff even though you might fail because when you fail, this is the last thing he never breaks his promises. You do, <laughs> so do I, but he never does. So what happens in the history with God is when God's people break their promises, they break the covenant that they have with God, he just goes silent, sometimes for 70 years and sometimes for 400 years. It's like he doesn't say anything, but he never reneges. He never says, I'm done with you. In fact, if you read the Minor Prophets, what you have is a God who says to his people, 
You've committed adultery against me. Adultery is a sin against a promise. It's not a sin against the law. He said, you've committed adultery with me. You've broken your vow. I would leave you if I could, but I can't. I can't. It's not in my nature. And so he goes silent for about 70 years. And when the 70 years are up, God remembers that's right, history changes not when God changes his mind. It changes when God remembers a promise. And he goes back and resurrects a promise he has made years ago. And he says, on this day, it's in the forefront of my mind, I will do this. Now, why do I go into all of this? Because I like Old Testament history. No, because I think what's happening in our society, you guys, is even among religious people is we have detached the promises that we make from the mind of a covenant. Our promises are no longer anchored in a covenant. They're anchored in the situations. And so when the terms change and the situations have changed, we start to feel as if the promise is flimsy. Because the promises that we're making as religious people so often are not rooted in our being. They're rooted in the air between us. And they don't fundamentally change the relationship that we have with the other person. We are committed to the terms of the contract more than we are committed to the other person. And so people who come into contracts with us do not always feel a sense of trust and security and confidence and freedom. They feel that they have to guard themselves because we might break it. And what I'm telling you this morning is that's not who you are. That is not where you came from. If you are a Christian in any sense, you are a Christian because of what God has done, not because of what you have done. You are living in the shadow of a covenant that he's made with you. And this is why every promise you make must be made out of that mindset. You can never reduce your promises to simple words because with you, they're not words. You are people of a promise, of a God who kept that promise. Now I understand what's happening in Matthew chapter five. The first guy is married to someone, but he has his eye on someone else. It's what Jesus said, he lusts in his heart. To, to, to lust is to create a situation in your mind when there isn't one. It is to see someone in a room and in your mind take them out of that room into an intimate relationship with you. Let me say that a little bit differently. It is to want from that person pleasures that are not consummate to your level of commitment. Your parents taught you that premarital sex was wrong 
because it violated some code in the Bible. When in fact in the Old Testament, that's not in the Bible. As long as you married the person. The problem is, you want something from a person without commitment consummate to that act. That's the duplicity. Your heart has gone all the way physically and only part of the way in commitment. There's no integrity. Or you're married and she is. And with your mouth, you've committed to this person, but with your heart, you're pursuing that one. Your heart is divided and not pure. Are you still with me? It's quiet. You're either doodling, cussing under your breath, or thinking. The second guy has committed with his mouth on oath that he would nurture and protect. That was the Jewish vow. Another person, and yet for him, situations have changed. And so it's time to change the promise. The problem here is not that he is violating one of the commandments, though he is. The problem is that he has forgotten he's a Jew. He is the chosen people of God living in a long shadow of a God who's made a covenant with him and kept every one of those covenants. Now he has made a covenant with her in the shadow of that covenant that God has made with him and he's deciding he wants out. So he wants one thing from his God and something else from himself. He lives a polluted heart. His heart's divided. The third guy is in court or he's in the marketplace. And the Jews had a problem back in those days because they have verses in the Old Testament that told them if you swear to do something and you swear it by God's name, then you're on the hook. So anytime you say, I swear to God, you're on. So what they were doing is they were creating scalable promises. They were finding alternatives to swearing to God so that they could appear to be committed to something, but not quite all the way in. So I don't swear to God, I just swear to the holy city, Jerusalem. I swear to heaven, I swear, I swear on my own head. You see what they're doing? They're scaling their promises. But see, this is where the Jews got it wrong. What makes the vow sacred is not that it is attached to the name of God, but that it is attached to the being of God. 
You attach any name you want to it. But you are standing in the shadow of a covenant God who makes promises out of his being. And that's the kind of person you are. So they're duplicitous. Let's put the um, diagram on the screen. So I'm asking myself then, um, what does it mean to keep my promise? What does it mean to live with integrity? How do I protect my reputation? For, for I think it's been 10 years, you guys, I've used this diagram. I've used the components of it anyway. When I hire people, when I vote to or not to ordain people, I use it when I go into contracts with people, I think about integrity. Because ultimately what I'm committing myself to is not the terms of the agreement, but the character of the person on the other side. So how do I assess character? This will take about three minutes, but you'll see how they work together. First, truthfulness. And by this, I do not mean that you simply tell people the truth. The word means reliable, dependable, follow through. It means what you say you'll do, you'll do on time at that cost. There's verity, gravitas in your words. So when you tell somebody about somebody else and what they did, and a week later you find out more information, it means you go back to the person you talk to and you update the information. It means when you argue your point, you tell people both sides, not just the facts that slant your argument. Are you with me? The second is the word goodness. Goodness does not just mean you have a good heart. It means that you have in your mind the interests of the other person. So that if we left you in a room by yourself and the total decision was yours, you would do what was good for the other person. So when someone just says, that's not my fault. I'm just speaking the truth. It's not my problem. If they got hurt, they lack integrity because they have truthfulness, but they're not telling the truth for the sake of the other person. The third component is courage, which means when it's difficult or hard or expensive, when it requires self-sacrifice on my part, I will still do the hard thing. It means persistence and uh, endurance. So here's how it works. Sometimes we come across as people of integrity simply by telling the truth. And as I said We lack a goodness. That's what you smell. That right there. 
you work for an organization and they've done everything they're supposed to do to honor the contract. But in the back of your mind, you're still wondering if it came right down to it, would they vote for me or them? In your mind, they lack integrity. Not because of truth, but because of goodness. You're not sure they have your best interest in mind. Or you work for someone who loves you an awful lot. They say great things about you. And they always tell the truth. But as the situation changes and they go into the boss's office and close the door behind them, you worry. Will they say good things when there's a lot on the line? Will they have courage? What you smell is not a lack of truth. It's a lack of courage. You don't think they're going to do it. So you think they lack integrity. When the Bible calls us to make promises, it calls us to be people of truthfulness, goodness, and courage all of the time with all of our words. <laughs>